In terms of the events that occurred, of course, about uh, seven weeks ago, many of you probably know uh, Ravi Zacharias. He's a spokesman for Christianity, especially in the, uh, to the university world. And he pointed out in a document that he wrote, which he produced about two weeks after the event, in which he mentioned something I think that's pretty insightful, even though I think we all understand it, and that one of the reasons that we in, in I mean, this land was founded, at least in general, on Christian principles. And so freedom is a basic concept that goes hand in hand with Christianity. But that is not true with Islam. In Islam, you live in a world of compulsion. You must do this, you must do that. And when I think about that, that speaks volumes about the religion. If you must compel people to stay loyal to it, compel people to follow it, there's something weak in the religion, something maybe not attractive about the religion. But when your faith can be allowed to be practiced freely and be, com be um, persecuted if necessary, uh, that speaks also for the truth, I think, of Christianity. But one of the interesting things he wrote, he was in way far away at the time the event happened, and he managed to get back to Paris. He, he travels all over the world ministering for Christ, and he's, he speaks about the memorial service at the National Cathedral. He says, I was alone in my room in Paris, engrossed in the proceedings. Hearing Billy Graham and our president drove me to my knees in gratitude that we have people of such sensitive hearts in place of leadership. Watching the closed eyes of members of Congress, Republican and Democrat alike, as they listened to the words of the Lord's Prayer, affirmed in my heart what a great nation this is. And then to listen to the words of a mighty fortress is our God was a stirring reminder of the, uh, that the devilish wills can never bring down God's word. Just as the cloud of hate unfurled by diabolical acts was dispelled by acts of mercy and love, so our pain and grief were brought to the Lord of all strength and healing. One of the verses of the hymn which struck him is the one, we, one of those we know so well. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And that's, I think, very encouraging to us. Also, some of you, especially that those of you who are connected directly with the, the upper echelons of the CMA probably uh, receive this, but there's a pastor from the East Coast. His name is Joe Shamha. I'm probably saying that wrong. Smaha, S-M-A-H-A. He's a CMA pastor in New Jersey, and he's also a volunteer firefighter. And so he was called in to, as a hazmat man, on the morning of the collapse of the towers. He was there after they had fallen. And he talks about what he saw and what the impression was. And one of the things he mentions was, is that he was just impressed with how many groups of people were standing. He said it was just total silence. He says, you could, the only thing you could hear was a siren now and then, but he said, downtown New York, where it's always busy, hustle, bustle. I mean, it was dead silence at the scene of the collapse. And he said, everywhere you could see little knots of people standing, holding hands and praying <laughs> in New York City, you know. And it was, it was pretty uh, amazing to him to see uh, what had happened. And he talked about the firefighters from New York who were finally allowed to go home as others came in. And he said, uh, 
Under the glow of emergency lighting, they began to march out, weary, worn, dusty, dirty, and solemn, like soldiers from the heat of battle. Some rode out on fire apparatus that was damaged, with windows blown out, partially crushed, and covered with dust. Some pieces were so badly damaged, it was a wonder they were even able to be driven off under their own power. And as New York City's bravest emerged from the rubble, the crowds who had gathered in the streets began to cheer and applaud and shout gratitude to these heroes. And, and he went on to say, the impromptu prayer meetings in the streets and the expressions of thanks to the firefighters gave a ray of hope that Romans 8.28 still held true and that God could still bring good to America out of the ashes of despair. Anyway, we keep receiving wonderful insights into these uh, events. If anybody wants, hasn't had and wants a copy of either of those, just let my wife know and, and we can do that um, for you. I'd like this morning as we go to opening prayer to read from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming down. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen, O oh Father, we're so grateful that we belong to the one who is eternal, immortal, invisible, all-wise, the one that we can bow down to with utter joy and peace and hope because we know that you are true and real and the omnipotent God of the universe. And Father, we know that in the midst of chaos, the victory still belongs to Christ. And we look forward to that day when we will stand in your presence and we will witness the almighty nature of your being and of the heaven which you have created. And we will be able to exalt the sun even as the the four and twenty elders did as they cast their crowns down upon the ground. Father, we know that we have nothing in ourselves to offer you, but we come unworthy as we are, made worthy by the blood of Christ, into your presence this day. We ask you to speak to our hearts, to teach us from your word, and that we won't just be hearers, as James says, but doers, and apply the word of God to our walk each and every day, because it is our walk more than our talk that bears witness, and even as we've seen that in these past seven weeks, around America and around the world. And Father, again, we want to pray for our president and our attorney general and our secretary of state and the other men and women in leadership in this country, that each will choose to commit himself, herself to you, and to seek wisdom from God above, and to make wise decisions as leaders, and Father, that you will lead this country through the minefield of international relations at this time. And Father, Scripture teaches us to pray for our enemies. We do pray for those individuals who have perpetrated this disaster and have cooperated with it. Somehow you will touch their lives. God, you're the God of might and miracle. You struck Paul down, who was an enemy of Christ as much as any, any enemy has ever been. And yet, on the road to Damascus, you met him and he was powerfully transformed. We pray that somehow an experience like that will come to many of these that are enemies of not only this country, but of Christianity and of the God of Christianity, of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, make Jesus real to these people. We just trust that your will will be accomplished this day in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the first book of Samuel, the 28th chapter, 
I'd like to read the first seven verses. Now it came about after those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and, camp and camped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Last week we looked at the situation that David had gotten himself into there uh, by being at Gath in uh, the land of Philistia and making himself a vassal to the king, uh, Achish, there. And we saw that by serving him, he had, of course, put himself in a situation that in the first two verses of this chapter became very, very difficult for, for David. He had, of course, as we read in the 27th chapter, he had struck against the allies of the Philistines and yet claimed that he was fighting against Israel so that Achish would think that he was a friend of his. And, of course, David kind of dug a hole for himself there. And now as we look at the 28th chapter, we discover that David is being asked by his lord, the king of, Achish, the king of Gath, to go with him to battle. And that puts David in a difficult situation because David, of course, loves Israel. David is going to be the king of Israel. And there's no way he's going to fight against Israel. And yet he is obliged to his suzerain, his lord here. Well, what happened, of course, was that David made a very ambivalent statement. As we read there in the, first, uh, in the second verse, he said, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do, <laughs> which could mean anything, of course. And Achish took it to mean I will, that David would demonstrate his great power on behalf of Achish. And, of course, David didn't mean it that way at all. But, of course, he was hoping that Achish would take it in, in the way that uh, would be safe, safest for David. So David had gotten himself into this pickle with the Philistine king Achish. But God is faithful and was faithful to his promise. And God will deliver David. And we talked about that last week at the end of class, and I don't want to belabor the point again, but we frequently get ourselves into situations that are of our own making. But God will, by, because of his faithfulness, help us if we turn to him and seek his help and acknowledge our need. Verses 3 to 7 of this particular chapter that we read this morning describe the beginning of the end for Saul. The writer here wants to prepare the reader for the extremity of Saul's actions, which the writer will be demonstrating to us pretty soon. And so in, in so doing, he, he repeats what he had already said back in the 25th chapter, the first verse, where he talks about the death and the burial of Samuel. And so he speaks about it again, reminding us that Samuel, God's great spokesman, was no longer available 
for counsel or to chastise Saul. As you know, Samuel is more often chastising Saul than actually counseling him, partly because Saul wasn't much in listening to Samuel's counsel, at least in obeying it. We're told first time in this passage that Saul had ordered that all of the mediums and the spirits be exiled from the land of Israel. The scripture talks about mediums. The, the word here means necromancer, one who has attempts to communicate with the dead. And it speaks of spiritists here. These are soothsayers, people who communicate with spirits. These are the two groups that are being referred to here. Exactly when did Saul banish these people from the land? He had been the anointer of Israel's first king and then of Israel's king to be. And he's gone. And so there was great lamentation and great mourning in Israel. And it's possible at that time that Saul wanted to demonstrate his leadership over the land and, and his uh, affinity for Samuel by, at that time, banishing all the mediums and all the spiritists out of the land to kind of cause everyone to think highly of him. Saul was into that, as you probably have noticed so far. Saul wanted to be looked upon as a good king and as a good leader and as an important person in Israel. But whatever was the real reason, that uh, Saul banished the mediums, his actions were in accord with God's commands. Let me uh, turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter. Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Perfect. Complete. The idea is complete. They are blameless in the um, spiritual sense here. Saul's actions that he took in ridding the land of these people was based more upon appearance and upon expediency than they were upon heart conviction. And that becomes clear from the events that we now read about as, as we proceed in this particular chapter. We discover that the Philistines have invaded the land. My regular map just doesn't give as much uh, detail here, this part, so I wanted to, I just made a copy of an, another map here to show uh, the exact places we're talking about here. The Philistines have come up from the south down here and they have marched along the main route, the Via Maris, and they have camped here at Shunem. This is the biggest plain, flatland, in all of Israel. This is the Valley of Jezreel, the Plain of Israelin, the Valley of Megiddo, whatever you want to call it, all of those names are applied to this area. I think I mentioned to you before that just as kind of a sign of the end times, standing on the Nazareth Ridge, which is right up in here, by the way, this is, of course, not the Bethlehem we're familiar with. This is another Bethlehem. That just means house of bread, so that, that's, that was a very common name. Stand on the, on the Nazareth Ridge, looking south into the uh, Valley of Megiddo today, right in the middle of the Valley of Megiddo is one of Israel's main air bases, 
where they scramble their F-16s and all the rest of them. So it gives you kind of a sense of the fact that uh, Megiddo and war have, have frequently been associated together. So here we have the army gathered here. Now, that's a great place for the Philistine army because they're trying to cut the country in half to weaken Saul's control. And, and they will tend to do that because they will gain, their, they will gain control of Bashan over here, which will mean that they will be able to pick, cut, cut right through here. But it also gives them an area to operate their chariots. Uh, Israel seems never to have developed chariot forces. Well, later in Solomon's time, uh, Israel developed some. But up to this time, Israel doesn't seem to ever operate chariot forces. But the Philistines did. And this would give them a greater opportunity to use them because the ground is flat to rolling in there and not uh, uh, rugged as much of Israel happens to be. And so Saul, as he uh, sees the enemy coming, he marches parallel down the ridge route from Gibeah, which is way down here, he marches on a parallel route. Now remember, there are three main routes. You have the Via Maris, the coast route, you have the ridge route, and you have the King's Highway that operates this way. They're all three north-south highways. And there are, of course, connectors at various places, mainly through the valleys, like the valley of uh, the river or the Nahal Harod, which is right through here. And so Saul, he camps right up here. This is Mount Gilboa right here. It's about a 1,700-foot high mountain that rises on the southern edge of the plain of Esdraelon or the Valley of Jezreel. And so he's right here. And here's Shunem, where the Philistines have camped. The two forces are less than five miles apart, maybe five or six miles apart. They're fairly close together. And so as Saul stands there on the slopes of the mountain Gilboa, he looks to the north at the base. There's a hill right here. This is called the Hill of Morah. It's a small little hill right here. Up here is Tabor, the famous uh, Mount Tabor, maybe where the uh, Transfiguration took place. But right here at the very base, the western base of the Hill of Morah is the town of Shunem. And so Saul is looking out over the area there, and you have to remember in those days there wasn't near the smog <laughs> that there is nowadays even in Israel. I, I think one of the things that was most disappointing to me when we spent several weeks in Turkey was that Turkey was a country, you think of Turkey, beautiful country, wide open, lots of, no, it was all smoggy there, you know, kind of disturbing. But he, he was able to see the Philistine camp all set in array down there. The thousands and tens of thousands, he probably saw the horses stabled over here and the chariots all parked over there. And as he looked at this and he looked at his own force, he had a terrible sinking feeling inside him. The enemy's force greatly out outnumbered his force. They had chariots, which would be like today, are trying to go into battle with nothing but foot soldiers, and the enemy has tanks. And we have no bazookas or anything else, you know, to deal with it. Saul had been in a situation like this before. If you remember back in chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel, he'd been in a very similar situation where he'd been outnumbered, the enemy was deep within the land, and yet God gave him a great victory. God inspired Jonathan, his son, to, to kick it off. And, and as a result, they kicked the Philistines completely out of Israelite territory. And in subsequent uh, years, Saul had defeated the Philistine time after time. So what's the problem, Saul? You know, God has granted drill deliverance through you before. And you have seen odds this great set against you before. But this time, there is no Samuel. There's no man of God to seek consultation from. 
And of course, I think that Samuel's rebukes probably came up into his mind. You will not receive the, you will not continue to hold the kingdom, Saul, and your son will not succeed you to the throne. A man of God's choosing will succeed you to the throne. I think those words were in his mind and, and the fact there was nobody to go to and the fact that he probably felt guilty from chasing David around for 15 years uh, through the wilderness. And so, as he looked at the situation, he felt hopeless and vulnerable. I don't know if you can relate to that, but the thought of being what is known as a rice Christian, someone who's smiley and greets you and praise the Lord on Sunday and the rest of the week they live like the world, that must be the way a person like that feels when they face a real crisis and God is not there for them because they are not connected to God as Saul was not. Was it possible that Saul at this point could see the handwriting on the wall? God had enabled him to defend Israel for 40 years now. But during those 40 years, of course, he had disobeyed God on numerous occasions and blatantly so. The wages of that disobedience were about to be paid. He'd had numerous opportunities to repent and we've talked about that as we've proceeded through these chapters. He had many times at which God allowed him to see his mercy and he could have returned to God, but he refused because his pride was so great that he would not humble himself. He would not admit that he needed God. Both Saul and David had feet of clay. Both committed gross sins against the Lord. But the contrast between the way Saul responded to rebuke and the way David responded to rebuke is dramatic. When Samuel rebuked Saul for his sin, Saul said, but, 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 but the people. He passed off the blame. He wouldn't accept it for himself. And you remember even once when, when Samuel read him the right act and was about to leave, he, he begged Samuel, stay here, please, and, and please go with me before the people so that they will think at least that I'm still in good standing with God. And then when we read about David's reaction to the rebuke that he received from Nathan after the heinous sin of the murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba, we find a great lesson in contrast. Let me read back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, which we studied a few weeks ago. Reading at verse 17, Samuel said, Is it not true Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of God? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, it was those people there, took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen and choices of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I'm not guilty. Contrast that to the words that I think probably Many of us turn to from time to time. If you read in the 51st Psalm, the heading, it says, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And you know the words. Let me just read the first few verses of Psalm 51. This is how David reacted 
to the words of Nathan the prophet, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you do speak and blameless when you judge. The contrast between Saul, a man anointed by God to be king over Israel, and David, a man anointed to be by God to be king over Israel, is dramatic. They both had the same opportunity. They both were, were, were blessed by the presence of prophets of God who spoke the word, and yet they, they took two different routes. Oh, David will, will commit sin, uh, some of which were as bad as those that uh, Saul committed, but it was the response of the two men to conviction that made the difference between them. Saul was a man who would lose his throne and be cast away, and David, it would be said, was a man after God's own heart. God was about to fulfill the prophecy that he had made through Samuel concerning the throne, that Saul would lose the throne and that the throne would not pass on to his own son. Although we have studied how worthy Jonathan was, Jonathan would have made a greater king than Saul any day, but Jonathan was demonstrated his humility and his submission and that he was not jealous of the fact that he would not inherit the throne, but that David would inherit the throne. David's 15-year testing period when he was chased from this wilderness to that wilderness was about over, and he was prepared to take the kingship. God had put him through the trials and made him ready to become king over Israel. And certainly for David and for his men, the timing was none too soon. That Saul's heart was not right, even in the hour of impending disaster, is clear from verse 6. Because in that verse we read, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul inquired. He sought from the Lord wisdom, a word from God, by every means that he knew. He prayed that God would send him a dream that would direct him. When that didn't happen, he called the priest, bring the Urim and Thummim and cast the Urim and Thummim and give me an answer. Nothing. And so he went to the prophets, probably some of the prophets that had been trained in Samuel's school of the prophets. He went to them and they were not able to give him a word from the Lord either. The silence from heaven was deafening. God did not respond because Saul's requests were based purely upon his fear of being humiliated and fear of losing his throne. He wasn't seeking God because he was now humble of heart, because he now wanted to obey God. That was not in his mind and not in his heart. And therefore, God did not answer him. Let me read a brief passage from the first proverb which I think applies rather well to this man, Saul. In the first proverb, beginning of verse 27, we read these words. Proverbs 1, 27. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, 
but they shall not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. This is Saul, a man who hated the ways of God, and then in the hour of distress he calls upon God, and God does not answer because he is to be satiated with his own devices. I firmly believe that had Saul truly repented, if Saul had humbled himself before God Almighty, God would have heard and God would have answered. Now, I don't think it would have changed the outcome in terms of what was going to happen to Saul. God's judgment in taking the throne from him was going to happen. But I don't think he would have died the way he did. I think he would have died nobly, honorably. I think that he would have died in such a way that the people would have remembered him well instead of in the humiliating way that he died taking his own life with his own hand and having his naked body nailed to the wall of a city. That Saul's attitude was one of pure expediency <coughs> rather than a genuine search for the word of the Lord is demonstrated by his turning to the prescribed sources for help. Okay, if God won't answer, I'll go to the devil. A source that he knew God condemned and which he himself had banished from Israel. God had spoken, of course, about such things many times. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, God speaking through Moses said, Do not turn to mediums or spiritualists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And then in the next chapter, 20th chapter, the 27th verse, he said, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. The scripture gives us judgment upon Saul in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. At verse 13, the end of the chapter, we read these words. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire before the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. Now, of course, it says, because he did not inquire of the Lord. Well, he did inquire, but he did not inquire honestly. He didn't inquire humbly. He didn't heart inquire from a heart committed to, to listening. So that, as a result, he didn't really inquire. And as a result, God carried out judgment upon this man. Verse 7 of this passage implies a very interesting fact. Verse 7 says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Uh, here's Endor. Isn't it interesting how these things are so close to each other? Saul is encamped on the northwest slopes of Gilboa. The Philistines are encamped at Shunem, and Endor is just four miles northeast of Shunem. In his desperation, Saul asked his lieutenants, find me a female medium. Female mediums were thought to be more in, more able to really make connection than male mediums. His officers were well aware of the fact 
that David had, that, that Saul had banned mediums and spiritualists, spiritists from the land. And yet they knew of one just four miles away, or actually from where they were camped, and the way they had to go it was probably closer to 10 miles, but nearby. Isn't that interesting? He had cast them out of the land, he had banned them, his men all knew this, and yet when he asked the question, uh, oh, by the way, there's one right over here. <laughs> Unless, of course, there's a time gap between Saul's question and their response, which, is, which of course, is possible. It's possible that he said, find me one, and so they said, okay, and went out and looked around, and finally, through some way, found out there was one, came back and reported. That's possible. But the way the verse is put together, it sounds like he asks the question, and right away he gets a response, is the way it sounds which, if that is true, could mean that, that Saul knew far less than his men do, did, that he was being kept in the dark about the fact there were still mediums and spiritualists in the land. And that could imply that his officers didn't agree with his banishing them from the land. I think it's important for us to remember that Israel at no time was to the man and to the woman truly children of God. There were always the rebels there were always those who were not following God, and sometimes the, the number was far greater than others because you remember when Elijah stood on the slopes of Mount Horeb, he cried out to God that he alone was left of the prophets of the Lord, which wasn't true, but that's the way he felt. So obviously the land wasn't exactly uh, committed to serving the Lord. The people as a whole were not. Whatever the case, they informed him that there was a medium at Endor. Endor was a small town located on the northern slopes of that same little hill called Mora. Right in here. There's a little hill. Shunem was on the west slope. Endor was on, at the base of the northern slope of that hill. And about four miles, as I said, from the Philistine camp. Saul wanted, of course, to go to Endor, but he wanted to steer clear of the Philistines. So he wasn't about to go, oh, well, the closest route is just to go, whoop. I'll just pretend like I'm, like I'm just an ordinary guy and just walk right past the Philistine camp. No, he wasn't going to do that. So obviously he had to take a route clear out around, you know, probably not way down here, but he had to go out around this way at least, go around the hill to the other side. So instead of, hmm, well, the distance, difference in, in distance was probably not too different from one way to the other, might have been eight or nine miles if he had gone west and north, probably closer to 10 if he went east and north. But either case, he took the journey to Endor. When he set his face to go, he had committed himself to seeking help from the enemy of the God he claimed to have served. Well, we don't have time to look at the next passage, but we're going to see that he disguises himself and goes to see if he can't get information from the so-called witch or medium of Endor. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, the way you described that reminds me of the Judas' last chance there when John says uh, after Jesus had offered him the morsel, uh, it says that he went out and it was night. Well, I mean, it wasn't just physical night. I mean, it yeah. was a dark moment. This is kind of Saul's... Yeah. That's a good comparison. Just yeah. came to my mind, the comparison that you were sharing it in that particular light. That's good. Thank you. It's even more scary when you think of it that way, isn't it? <laughs> Don, I also thought about the Harry Potter books when you were reading these scriptures. It's like Christian parents don't even know these scriptures are in the Bible. 
they're Christian parents and Christians reading these books. And, you know, it's everything that is against God. Yeah. And so it's just amazing that people don't realize. Because everything that's yeah. in these scriptures is in those books. Yeah. And they're teaching children to put spells on people and, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like what the scripture tells us, that our cleansing comes through our knowledge and study of the word. And if we don't know the word, we get ourselves involved in all kinds of things that are wrong, such as that. And I think Christian parents who allow their children into things that are truly diabolical are people who are probably just simply ignorant of the word and they just don't know. 